0: Part two Chapter one of Madame Bovary This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert Translated by Eleanor Marx Aveling, Part two Chapter one. Yonville Abbey, so called from an old Capuchin Abbey, of which not even the ruins remain, is a market-town twenty-four miles from Rouen, between the Abbeville and Beauvais roads, at the foot of a valley watered by the Rueul, a little river that runs into the Andelle, after turning three water-mills near its mouth, where there are a few trout that the lads amuse themselves by fishing for on Sundays. We leave the high-road at La Boissiere, and keep straight on to the top of the Le Hill, whence the valley is seen. The river that runs through it makes of it, as it were, two regions with distinct physiognomies. All on the left is pasture-land, all of the right arable. The meadow stretches under a bulge of low hills to join at the back with the pasture-land of the Bray country, while on the eastern side, the plain, gently rising, broadens out "'showing as far as I can follow its blonde cornfields. "'The water, flowing by the grass, divides with a white line the color of the roads and of the plains, and the country is like a great unfolded mantle, with a green velvet cape bordered with a fringe of silver. "'Before us, on the verge of the horizon, lie the oaks of the forest of Argueil, with the steeps of the Saint-Jean hills scarred from top to bottom with red irregular lines.' They are rain tracks, and these brick tones standing out in narrow streaks against the grey colour of the mountain, are due to the quantity of iron springs that flow beyond in the neighbouring country. Here we are on the confines of Normandy, Picardy, and the Ile de France, a bastard land whose language is without accent and its landscape is without character. It is there that they make the worst Neufchatel cheeses of all the arrondissements, and on the other hand. Farming is costly, because so much manure is needed to enrich this freeable soil full of sand and flints. Up to 1835, there was no practicable road for getting to Yonville. But about this time, a cross-road was made which joins that of Abbeville to that of Amiens, and is occasionally used by the Rouen wagoners on their way to Flanders. yonville labbaye has remained stationary in spite of its new outlet. Instead of improving the soil— they persist in keeping up the pasture lands, however depreciated they may be in value, and the lazy burrow, growing away from the plain, has naturally spread riverwards. It is seen from afar sprawling along the banks like a cowherd taking a siesta by the waterside. At the foot of the hill beyond the bridge begins a roadway, planted with young aspens, that leads in a straight line to the first houses in the place. These, fenced in by hedges, are in the middle of courtyards full of straggling buildings, wine-presses, cart-sheds, and distilleries scattered under thick trees, with ladders, poles, or scythes hung on to the branches. The thatched roofs, like fur caps drawn over eyes, reach down over about a third of the low windows, whose coarse convex glasses have knots in the middle, like the bottoms of bottles. Against the plaster wall diagonally crossed by black joists, A meagre pear-tree sometimes leans, and the ground floors have at their door a small swing-gate to keep out the chicks that come pilfering crumbs of bread steeped in cider on the threshold. But the courtyards grow narrower, the houses closer together, and the fences disappear. A bundle of ferns swings under a window from the end of a broomstick. There is a blacksmith's forge, and then a wheelwright's, with two or three new carts outside that partly block the way. Then across an open space appears a white house beyond a grass mound, ornamented by a cupid, his finger on his lips. Two brass vases are at each end of a flight of steps. Scutcheons, the panaceaux that have to be hung over the doors of notaries, blaze upon the door. It is the notary's house, and the finest in the place. The church is on the other side of the street, twenty paces farther down, at the entrance of the square. The little cemetery that surrounds it, closed in by a wall breast-high, is so full of graves that the old stones, level with the ground, form a continuous pavement, on which the grass of itself has marked out regular green squares. The church was rebuilt during the last years of the reign of Charles X. The wooden roof is beginning to rot from the top, and here and there has black hollows in its blue color. Over the door, where the organ should be, is aloft for the men, with a spiral staircase that reverberates under their wooden shoes. The daylight coming through the plain glass windows falls obliquely upon the pews ranged along the walls, which are adorned here and there with a straw mat, bearing beneath it the words in large letters, Mr. So-and-so's pew. Farther on, at a spot where the building narrows, the confessional forms a pendant to a statuette of the Virgin, clothed in a satin robe, coiffed with a tulle veil sprinkled with silver stars, and with red cheeks, like an idol of the Sandwich Islands. And finally, a copy of the Holy Family, presented by the Minister of the Interior, overlooking the high altar, between four candlesticks, closes in the perspective. The choir-stalls of Deal Wood have been left unpainted. The market—that is to say, a tiled roof supported by some twenty posts— Occupies of itself about half the public square of Yonville. The town hall, constructed from the designs of a Paris architect, is a sort of Greek temple that forms the corner next to the chemist's shop. On the ground floor are three ionic columns, and on the first floor a semicircular gallery, while the dome that crowns it is occupied by a Gallic cock, resting one foot upon the chart, and holding in the other the scales of justice. But that which most attracts the eye is opposite the Lyon d'Or inn—the chemist's shop of Monsieur Homais. In the evening, especially, its argand lamp is lit up, and the red and green jars that embellish his shop-front throw far across the street their two streams of colour. Then across them, as if in Bengal lights, is seen the shadow of the chemist leaning over his desk. His house, from top to bottom, is placarded with inscriptions written in large hand, Round hand, printed hand, Vichy, seltzer, barege waters, blood purifiers, Raspail, Pantent medicine, Arabian, Rockahoot, Darset, lozenges, Ragnol paste, trusses, baths, hygienic chocolate, etc. And the signboard, which takes up all the breadth of the shop, bears in gold letters OME, chemist. Then, at the back of the shop, behind the great scales fixed to the counter, the word LABORATORY appears on a scroll above a glass door, which about half-way up once more repeats OME, in gold letters on a black ground. Beyond this, there is nothing to see at Yonville. The street, the only one, a gunshot in length and flanked by a few shops on either side, stops short at the turn of the high-road. If it is left on the right hand, and the foot of the St. Jean Hills followed, the cemetery is soon reached. At the time of the cholera, in order to enlarge this, a piece of wall was pulled down, and three acres of land by its side purchased. But all the new portion is almost tenantless. The tombs, as heretofore, continue to crowd together towards the gate. The keeper, who is at once grave-digger and church-beadle, thus making a double profit out of the parish corpses—has taken advantage of the unused plot of ground to plant potatoes there. From year to year, however, his small field grows smaller, and when there is an epidemic, he does not know whether to rejoice at the deaths, or regret the burials. "'You live on the dead, Lestiboudou,' the curie at last said to him one day. This grim remark made him reflect. It checked him for some time— but to this day he carries on the cultivation of his little tubers, and even maintains stoutly that they grow naturally. Since the event's about to be narrated, nothing, in fact, has changed at Yonville. The tin tricolour flag still swings at the top of the church steeple. The two chintz-streamers still flutter in the wind from the linen-drapers. The chemist's fetuses, like lumps of white amadou, rot more and more in their turbid alcohol and above the big door of the inn the old golden lion, faded by rain, still shows passers-by its poodle mane. On the evening when the Bovaries were to arrive at Yonville, Widow Lefrancois, the landlady of this inn, was so very busy that she sweated great drops as she moved her saucepans. To-morrow was market-day. The meat had to be cut beforehand, the fowls drawn, the soup and coffee made. Moreover, she had the boarder's meal to see to and that of the doctor, his wife, and their servant. The billiard-room was echoing with bursts of laughter. Three millers in a small parlour were calling for brandy, the wood was blazing, the brazen pan was hissing, and on the long kitchen table, amid the quarters of raw mutton, rose piles of plates that rattled with the shaking of the block on which spinach was being chopped. From the poultry-yard was heard the screaming of the fowls whom the servant was chasing in order to wring their necks. A man slightly marked with smallpox, in green leather slippers, and wearing a velvet cap with a gold tassel, was warming his back at the chimney. His face expressed nothing but self-satisfaction, and he appeared to take life as calmly as the goldfinch suspended over his head in its wicker cage. This was the chemist. "'Artemise!' shouted the landlady. "'Chop me some wood! Fill the water-bottles! Bring some brandy! Look sharp!' "'If only I knew what dessert to offer the guests you are expecting! "'Good heavens! "'Those furniture-movers are beginning their racket in the billiard-room again, "'and their van has been left before the front door. "'The hirondelle might run into it when it draws up. "'Call Polite and tell him to put it up. "'Only think, Monsieur Homais, "'that since morning they have had about fifteen games "'and drunk eight jars of cider. "'Why, they'll tear my cloth for me!' She went on, looking at them from a distance, her strainer in her hand. That wouldn't be much of a loss, replied Monsieur Homais. You would buy another. Another billiard-table? exclaimed the widow. Since that one is coming to pieces, Madame Lefrancois. I tell you again, you are doing yourself harm, much harm. And besides, players now want narrow pockets and heavy cues. Hazards aren't played now. Everything is changed. One must keep pace with the times. Just look at Tellier.' The hostess reddened with vexation. The chemist went on. "'You may say what you like. His table is better than yours, and if one were to think, for example, of getting up a patriotic pool for Poland, or the sufferers from the Lyons floods—' "'It isn't beggars like him that'll frighten us,' interrupted the landlady, shrugging her fat shoulders. "'Come, come, Monsieur Aumet. "'As long as the Lion door exists, people will come to it. "'We've feathered our nest, "'while one of these days you'll find the Café Francais "'closed with a big placard on the shutters. "'Change my billiard-table,' she went on, speaking to herself, "'the table that comes in so handy for folding the washing, "'and on which in the hunting season I have slept six visitors. "'But that dawdler, Hiver, doesn't come. "'Are you waiting for him for your gentleman's dinner?' "'Wait for him?' and what about Monsieur Binet? As the clock strikes six you'll see him come in, for he hasn't his equal under the sun for punctuality. He must always have his seat in the small parlour. He'd rather die than dine anywhere else. And so squeamish as he is, and so particular about the cider. Not like Monsieur Lyon. He sometimes comes at seven, or even half-past, and he doesn't so much as look at what he eats. Such a nice young man! Never speaks a rough word." Well, you see there's a great difference between an educated man and an old carabineer who is now a tax collector. Six o'clock struck. Binet came in. He wore a blue frock coat falling in a straight line round his thin body, and his leather cap, with its lappets knotted over the top of his head with string, showed under the turned-up peak a bald forehead flattened by the constant wearing of a helmet. He wore a black cloth waistcoat, a hair collar, grey trousers, and all the year round well-blacked boots, that had two parallel swellings due to the sticking out of his big toes. Not a hair stood out from the regular line of fair whiskers, which, encircling his jaws, framed, after the fashion of a garden-border, his long, wan face, whose eyes were small and the nose hooked. Clever at all games of cards, a good hunter, and writing a fine hand, he had at home a lath and amused himself by turning napkin-rings, with which he filled up his house, with the jealousy of an artist and the egotism of a bourgeois. He went to the small parlour, but the three millers had to be got out first, and during the whole time necessary for laying the cloth, Binet remained silent in his place near the stove. Then he shut the door and took off his cap in his usual way. "'It isn't with saying civil things that he'll wear out his tongue,' said the chemist, as soon as he was along with the landlady. "'He never talks more,' she replied. "'Last week two travellers in the cloth-line were here—such clever chaps who told such jokes in the evening that I fairly cried with laughing. And he stood there like a dab fish, and never said a word.' "'Yes,' observed the chemist. "'No imagination, no sallies, nothing that makes the society man.' "'Yet they say he has parts,' objected the landlady. "'Parts!' replied Monsieur Homet. "'He parts. In his own line it is possible,' he added in a calmer tone. And he went on. "'Ha! that a merchant who has large connections, a jurisconsult, a doctor, a chemist, should be thus absent-minded, that they should become whimsical or even peevish, I can understand. Such cases are cited in history. But at least it is because they are thinking of something—' "'Myself, for example, how often has it happened to me to look on the bureau for my pen to write a label, and to find, after all, that I had put it behind my ear?' Madame Lefrancois just then went to the door to see if the hirondelle were not coming. She started. A man dressed in black suddenly came into the kitchen. By the last gleam of twilight, one could see that his face was rubicund, and his form athletic. "'What can I do for you, Monsieur le Curie?' asked the landlady as she reached down from the chimney one of the copper candlesticks placed with their candles in a row. "'Will you take something—a thimbleful of cassis—black currant liquor—a glass of wine?' The priest declined very politely. He had come for his umbrella, that he had forgotten the other day at the Ernemont convent, and after asking Madame Lefrancois to have it sent to him at the Presbytery in the evening, he left for the church, from which the Angelus was ringing— when the chemist no longer heard the noise of his boots along the square, he thought the priest's behavior just now very unbecoming. This refusal to take any refreshment seemed to him the most odious hypocrisy. All priests tippled on the sly, and were trying to bring back the days of the tithe. The landlady took up the defense of her curé. Besides, he could double up four men like you over his knee— "'Last year he helped our people to bring in the straw. "'He carried as many as six trusses at once. "'He is so strong.' "'Bravo,' said the chemist. "'Now just send your daughters to confess to fellows with such a temperament. "'I, if I were the government, I'd have the priests bled once a month. "'Yes, Madame Lefrancois, every month. "'A good phlebotomy, in the interests of the police and morals.' "'Be quiet, Monsieur Romay. "'You are an infidel.' you've no religion.' The chemist answered, "'I have a religion, my religion, and I even have more than all these others with their mummeries and their juggling. I adore God, on the contrary. I believe in the Supreme Being, in a Creator, whatever He may be. I care little who has placed us here below to fulfil our duties as citizens and fathers of families, But I don't need to go to church to kiss silver plates, and fatten, out of my pocket, a lot of good-for-nothings who live better than we do. For one can know him as well in a wood, in a field, or even contemplating the eternal vault like the ancients. My God! Mine is the God of Socrates, of Franklin, of Voltaire, and of Béranger. I am for the profession of faith, of the Savoyard Vicar, and the immortal principles of eighty-nine and I can't admit of an old boy of a god who takes walks in his garden with a cane in his hand, who lodges his friends in the belly of whales, dies uttering a cry, and rises again at the end of three days—things absurd in themselves, and completely opposed, moreover, to all physical laws, which prove to us, by the way, that priests have always wallowed in turpid ignorance, in which they would fain engulf the people with them. He ceased, looking round for an audience— for in his bubbling over the chemist had for a moment fancied himself in the midst of the town council. But the landlady no longer heeded him—she was listening to a distant rolling. One could distinguish the noise of a carriage mingled with the clattering of loose horseshoes that beat against the ground, and at last the hirondelle stopped at the door. It was a yellow box on two large wheels. That, reaching to the tilt, prevented travellers from seeing the road and dirtied their shoulders— The small panes of the narrow windows rattled in their sashes when the coach was closed, and retained here and there patches of mud amidst the old layers of dust, that not even storms of rain had altogether washed away. It was drawn by three horses, the first a leader, and when it came downhill, its bottom jolted against the ground. Some of the inhabitants of Yonville came out into the square. They all spoke at once, asking for news, for explanations, for hampers— Hiver did not know whom to answer. It was he who did the errands of the place in town. He went to the shops, and brought back rolls of leather for the shoemaker, old iron for the farrier, a barrel of herrings for his mistress, caps from the milliners, locks from the hairdressers, and all along the road on his return journey he distributed his parcels, which he threw, standing upright on his seat and shouting at the top of his voice, over the enclosures of the yards. An accident had delayed him. Madame Bovary's greyhound had run across the field. They had whistled for him a quarter of an hour. Hiver had even gone back a mile and a half, expecting every moment to catch sight of her. But it had been necessary to go on. Emma had wept, grown angry. She had accused Charles of this misfortune. Monsieur Leroe, a draper, who happened to be in the coach with her, had tried to console her by a number of examples of lost dogs recognizing their masters at the end of long years— One, he said, had been told of, who had come back to Paris from Constantinople. Another had gone one hundred and fifty miles in a straight line, and swum four rivers, and his own father had possessed a poodle, which, after twelve years of absence, had all of a sudden jumped on his back in the street, as he was going to dine in town. End of Part 2 Chapter 1